Thanks, Shay. So last week, I geeked out on history, for those of you that were here. And this week, I want to geek out on literature, especially the writing of it, okay? Some of you memories will be jogged who were here when we went through Corinthians on this. But I'm not going to get into as much detail as I used to get into when we were going through that book verse by verse. What we're in is the middle of a series on Paul's theology on the Eucharist, on communion. This has been the year of communion at Cana. Many, as you know, we've been talking about it and looking at it from many different perspectives. And finally, we're jumping right in to this particular homily of Paul's. And what we did last week was we looked at the historical and sociological context for this incredible homily that Paul has given us. This week we're going to look at the composition of that homily because it's very important to understand it, to understand what Paul's trying to say. Next week what we do, we're going to go straight at the difficult statements in it because there's a lot in reading this when you hear that. And then the week after, if you're around, we're going to consider what the bread and wine might actually be in light of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples when he said what at first read are incredibly perplexing and even disturbing words that it is his body and his blood that we are actually taking part in. But maybe, in light of our lively discussion on omnipresence, it's not so perplexing or disturbing after all. But right now, what we're doing is examining Paul's theology on communion because this tends to inform most of the theology in the church around the Eucharist table. And there are many, many different opinions around the communion table within the church. And what I have learned through the years is that maybe some of what we think is Paul's theology on communion is not Paul's theology on communion. Maybe we give him credit or blame, depending on our perspective, for things that he was not trying to say at all. So, last week, when we looked at the historical perspective, one of the things we realized is that the problem Paul was dealing with in the church at Corinth has not been part of the church for at least 1,500 years or more. So, when we insist on making straight-line applications from this passage to our lives today, we end up with teachings that can cause pain, hurt, confusion, and some that could even be considered a different gospel, which Paul was always concerned about a different gospel being spread. So, this is a very important place to begin in any exploration of what communion is and means and how we should be celebrating it. All right, so let's get to the geeking out part. Paul was one of the most brilliant writers ever. You heard me say when we were studying his letter that I think he's probably a better writer than Shakespeare was. All right? And this homily of his is probably maybe his most brilliant piece of writing that he ever did. So it's a three-part homily, and it's in a classic ring composition, which he loved. And this is how Paul wrote most of his stuff. It has two outside rings, the A parts. It's an ABA pattern. Your Lord's Supper celebration is a mess. The other outside, your Lord's Supper celebration is a mess. And then right in the middle, which is the climax, he gives us the tradition of Jesus. And what he's revealing is how their particular problem goes against the very essence of it. All right, so I know it's hot, and I know not everyone's going to be into this literature bit, so if you get tired, just stand up so you don't fall asleep. So that's important. But trust me, we're going somewhere other than just me geeking out on this, even though it, it's to me, it's incredibly exciting, this stuff. So I'm going to make couple side notes here just to if, if you've never studied Paul I just want to bring you in a little bit because this is incredibly powerful Paul gets such a bad rap from a lot of different perspectives and a lot of it has to do with we are 
are limited to English and we're limited to English translations. And we have most of the time no idea of what Paul is doing and how Paul is writing. Okay, so watch this. This homily, which is brilliant, is actually in the middle of a much larger homily that makes up a good portion of Corinthians, which itself is an incredible ring composition. So it starts in chapter 11-2 is where this particular homily comes, and it goes all the way through chapter 14-40. And you can see, all right, B, this is what we're looking at. Order and worship, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. But so this massive homily has this incredible ring composition. So where, oh, sorry, I'll go back. So you see where it's men and women worshiping. That's the outside rings. Then it's the order and worship, the next rings, gifts in the nature of the body, gifts in upbuilding the church. And then right in the middle, his climax, which is his hymn to love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. That's that great God is, which is really at some level the whole center of the Bible because that's God is love, right? Love is, God is, this is what God is, and this is what God has done for us. And everything Paul writes comes out of that, but right here in this incredible thing. So in the middle of this incredible homily, he throws this homily in, all right? And one other side note before we get back into this homily, what's really cool, his climax here is the tradition from Jesus. And what Paul often did when he wrote his homilies is right in the middle of the climax would be an early church tradition. Here's some examples of where we find that in his early homily, but we preach Christ crucified, and the next one crucified the Lord of glory, command the Lord, Christ story, he raised the Messiah. Throughout Corinthians, there's all these little homilies that then he puts together and assembles in this incredible letter that he wrote. And when he's not using an early church tradition in the middle of his homilies for the climax, he's quoting ancient text. Two shall become one flesh, written in the law of Moses, those who serve in the temple, the people sat down, and at the, it is written, etc., etc. See, so he's, it's incredible what he does. Now, this homily is even more amazing than that because each of these parts of this homily have their own unbelievable composition. Each of them have seven distinct parts. The first one is just a classic ring composition that he loves so much. This is how this homily starts. This is the first A, 17 through 30, 22. And look, look at how he does this. So I think I have these highlighted. Yeah, so his outside rings are no praise for you. Then the next ones are the church divisions, the church abuse of others, the same exact context. Then the next rings are no unity in the church. And then right in the middle is, this is not the Lord's Supper when you assemble. That's what he's saying. Then the second part of the homily, which is the Jesus tradition, that's just a straightforward linear progression of seven sections because he's just quoting an early church tradition, right? But that's very important. That's his climax. And then the last part is also a ring composition. 27 through 34 is a ring composition. It's just a bit modified. And he starts off with eat guilty, eat condemned, and because of that, you're weak, ill, dead. And then he talks about examining self, judging self, judged by the Lord. So it, th this is Paul, right? Isn't this some remarkable stuff? I know, I can tell you guys are all excited about this, just like I am. But I don't bring this up because I just love this stuff about Paul and how incredible he is. I bring this up because this can help us understand what Paul is trying to get at in this incredibly difficult passage of Scripture that's really important. All right, Especially when we try to come to terms with some of the more challenging statements. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to examine one of the larger challenges of this passage, these verses. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment 
on themselves. These three verses have led to so much confusion and even interpretation of this passage. Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar, says this about these verses. These verses have caused a great deal of agonized introspection across the church throughout the centuries, and Gordon Fee, who is a relatively very conservative scholar of the Bible, he even he says this. This is an incalculable tragedy for countless thousands, both in terms of a foreboding of the table and guilt for perhaps having partaken unworthily because of these verses. And I'm part of those countless thousands. I know Becca is because we were brought up in the same tradition. And I'm sure more than just Becca and I sitting here have been part of those countless thousands that these verses have been used. So this is exactly why an appreciation of Paul's composition style can help us. Okay? Most importantly, we need to understand that often when Paul was writing in this ring style, his climax is in the middle. And that is very different for us. That's not how we read. That's not how we write. Right? When we're going to write something, we're going to give an introduction and build up to the climax. That's not what Paul does. And this is important. So if we were to really understand how he's writing, we would actually have to read this homily this way. A, then the second A, which I put here for C, just for clarity, then finish off with the climax. But because we, it's hard just picking up an English Bible and just trying to read it and understand it. It's hard to do that. So what happens is, first of all, the, the 17 through 22 is often ignored. No one starts teaching on communion with 17 through 22, even though that is the whole context of the thing. And it often starts with verse 23 instead, and it looks like this. They st and this is how we get taught what Paul's trying to tell us about communion. So for I receive from the Lord, so he just talks about it as sort of an introduction, then we think this is the climax, these challenging verses. You see? And that changes the whole focus for us, even though we might not even understand how that's happening, because it's happening unconsciously sometimes, or not. People are just telling us this is what it is, right? But that's not how Paul is writing. And then what happens with this misreading was compounded by early English trans translations like the King James that use this word unworthily. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty. So what happens here is unworthily, Dave can back me up on this because he's an English teacher. This is a very personal word, right? We see this as personal worth. This is about our personal worth. And so this directive has been understood to mean a number of different personal prerequisites that we should go through before we take communion, right? Because that's how we've been presented this. So here's some from across, from across Christianity. Maybe some of you will recognize these. They come from different branches, some overlap branches. But this directive has been led to teaching on, well, you need to personally examine yourself before you come to this table. That's one that is, is very traditional out there. Number two, you better repent of all your sin in your lives before you come to this table. Another one that's out there, you should properly understand the elements as either the body and blood of Christ or symbols of the body and blood of Christ, depending on which church tradition you're from. Or you can't take it if you don't do that. Other traditions, you have to have full contemplation of the crucified Christ prior to taking it, etc., 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 because that's sort of what this looks like. 
Now, later translations have been helpful. They've come up with unworthy manner, as you saw, but by then years of tradition had been established and much of the damage was done. So let's do something. Let's read it the way we should read it if to understand it the way we understand linear literature. And I think you'll see how this is helpful. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So then, whoever eats and drink the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's helpful because the climax here is explaining to us again and again and again the entire essence of the Christ story is self-sacrificial love. And you guys are getting together and thinking about yourself and no one else. See? It's helpful. Paul did not give the communion tradition and then said self-examination is a prerequisite. That wasn't his climax. What he's dealing with is he's dealing with a very serious problem in Corinth and says, if you're part of that problem, you're celebrating this in an unworthy manner. So, let me go back just last week for a minute to refresh our memories, and, and some of us weren't here last week, and it didn't get recorded, sorry. If you need last week's, I'll be happy to send you, the, send you my notes on it. So, for the last 1,500 years or more, the celebration of the Lord's Supper takes place in a church service, okay? And it's always different. You know, you come and get it here, we break it for you, other places, pass it around. It doesn't matter, but it's always in a church service. No one is celebrating it in an unworthy manner. Everyone's celebrating it the same, just with different ideas and different things, okay? What was happening in Corinth that Paul was dealing with, this was part of an assembly. Now, the Christians did not invent the assembly. The Christians were late to the assembly world in the Greek world. Greek and Romans had assemblies all the time, political assemblies, other god, assemb god different gods assemblies, civic assemblies, co com commerce assemblies, all these different groups that people belong to. And when they got together in an assembly, there would be a full-blown meal and then what was called a symposium and with this transition period in between. And during that transition period is when they would honor the particular god associated with their assembly. This is when scholars think that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper in that transition between the meal and the symposium. And what we saw last week, which was culturally, which was the cultural precedent, which is just culturally normal, is that these meals, literally these meals, the rich ate whatever they wanted and as much as what they wanted, and the poor sometimes were given either leftovers or a simple meal made for them. And the illustration I used last week, which I'll use again because I love it so much, is that this is like when I get invited to Tito's house and he has a fridge full of treehouse beer that he's drinking and he gives me a Bud Light. That's what was going on in Corinth. And then he makes lobsters and he makes tenderloin and he gives me a hot dog. 
all right? That's what was happening. But see, that was perfectly cultural and accepted and normal. And here's Paul going, what? I don't care that that's what they do culturally. That is not this that I receive from the Lord. Do you see? That's not happening anymore. That's not happening. So Paul's saying, listen, I'm not telling you to self-examine your personal sins here. What I'm saying is recognize how grotesque your problem is in light of what the Lord's Supper really means. All right? So, see, notice his explanation of why the problem was so horrible. So he says here, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Here's where the problem came in. Okay? Again, we go, our Western mindsets, we go straight to the idea, oh, he's talking about examining our body and the sin in our personal lives. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the body of believers, which is obvious when you read him in context and understand this. Okay? Now, here's a couple problems with translation. All right? Here's one of them. The NIV and others have added the body of the Lord, but that's, that's an addition. That's, that's a re later edit, editorial comment by someone. That's in none of the earliest manuscripts are, are in there. Okay? Now, the body of the Lord could still be understood as, as the body of believers, but not here because if we read this closely, there is a point you will be guilty against the body and blood of the Lord. We'll talk about that in a second. But in context, Paul is talking about a body of believers when he says you do not judge the body rightly. We know this. Why? Because back in chapter 10, when he first started talking about communion, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all take of one bread. Okay? So, for St. Paul, this is really important. For St. Paul, there is both a vertical and a horizontal component to communion. He wants us to know there is a true oneness with God when we break bread, and there is a true oneness with each other when we break bread. What was happening in Corinth at the Lord's table was a total violation of that covenant. The rich were having way too much, the rest were not having enough. This is not discerning the body at all. At all. That is rather complete inequality in the body. And Paul is clear in his theology over the course of his library that that is not true Christian theology. True Christian theology, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Boy, we sort of blew that one in church, didn't we? <laughs> For you are all one in Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Colossians, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Romans, even the righteous of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is no distinction. None. See why it's so important to read the whole Bible together? You guys do realize that during civil rights movement in this country, it was the Christian church not leading the fight for civil rights. It was the Christian church using scripture to support slavery. You understand that, right? 
because you can use Scripture to support anything you want. In fact, Scripture today, honestly, this is why I always smile when a biblical literalist is arguing with me. I'm like, oh, so you support slavery? Oh, no, no. Like, well, then you're not a biblical literalist. You can't. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever go away from slavery. So what do you do with that? You have to do something. You have to read the Bible. You've got to think about Jesus Christ. You have to let Christ help us understand what maybe was happening and what Paul was really saying. Paul certainly couldn't have been supporting slavery, except that in his time and place he probably was. But that doesn't mean we should be supporting, right? You see what I mean? It's just challenging. I'm just getting us to think. Sorry, I'm trying to wake us up. Some of you are nodding off. I'm seeing, so I'm just trying to get this. All right? Back to the Lord's Supper and why it's so important to understand that we are all equal. Fee is excellent here. I'm going I'm to let Fee say it because he says it a lot better than me. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. It is the meal in which at a common table with one loaf and common cup, they proclaim that through the death of Jesus Christ, they were one body, the body of Christ. And therefore, they are not just saying any group of sociologically diverse people who could keep those differences intact at this table. Here they must discern, recognize, as distinct the one body of Christ of which they are all parts and in which they are all gifts to one another. And so Paul says to them, to not recognize this is to celebrate the meal in an unworthy manner. So check and be sure this is not happening as the celebration. Don't be the rich abusing the poor at the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now one more side note. I told you we'd come back to this. Guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. All right? This is most likely a reference to those people who are not recognizing the one body of believers as being equal. And what he's saying, hey, by overindulging and abusing the poor, you are proving not to be any different than the pagans that crucified our Lord. Serious, what Paul's getting at. Serious. This problem in Corinth, we can't even really begin to understand and imagine. It was horrific when you think about what the body of Christ is. What the body is, right? Horrific. Bailey cites a number of Middle Eastern versions of Scripture that use very strong language here for guilty. And he says, all these versions recognize that something dark and sinister is taking place. So like I said last week, and I said it again this week, and you ha I want you to hear this. Beck, I really want you to hear this. Is that, thank God this exact problem no longer exists in the church. And it hasn't for over 1,500 years. Okay? Now, there might be still ways in which we could celebrate this table in an unworthy manner, but this passage does not directly deal with that, though I'm going to talk about it in one second. Okay, so now I'm done geeking out over literature. Here's my entire sermon. It's eight sentences, so if you haven't heard anything else, I want you to hear this bit. All right, here's the whole sermon. If these verses... have been used to hurt you, or if you have been made to feel guilty of taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, if you have been made to undergo serious doubt about God's love for you, I'm sorry that you endured those things. I do not believe that is what Paul is teaching. A, 
You can't possibly be guilty of what the Corinthians were guilty of. None of us can. And B, this is not a call to self-inspection of our personal lives to be sure we are worthy of this table. I want you to ask yourself this question. And it seems simple, but I don't, I don't know why it doesn't make sense. Ask this question. Who is worthy to be at this table? Who? No one. That's the whole point. No one is worthy to be at this table. That is just not interpretation that is contextually wrong of Paul. That goes against the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? All have sinned and fallen short. All. All. Don't forget who was at the table when Jesus started this whole thing. One guy that was about to betray him and 11 guys that were going to disavow him and run away from him and deny him. They weren't worthy of his body and blood any more than any of us are worthy of his body and blood. This table in its purest form is a constant reminder of that beautiful story. That's why we break bread at Cana every week. That's why I think Christians all over the world should break bread all the time, as much as they can. How this ever became an add-on, I don't get. This is the central piece, the reminder weekly, we're not worthy of this, but God died so we can have it. This table is a reminder of that. Remember me, remember me, meaning remember you're not worthy of me, but I love you so much I died for you. It's a reminder of that. It's a celebration of that. You get to come every week and celebrate that we are loved by God. And it's a public confession of that. We come up here and say publicly, we're not worthy. God loves us so much. And we thank Him and celebrate for that. And so, maybe, the only way to celebrate this meal in an unworthy manner, which gets a bit terrifying when you read what Paul has to say about that, is to make people think they have to be worthy to participate with us in our celebration. That seems like a different gospel, doesn't it? It seems like it suddenly becomes something we earn or we're good enough for or it seems like a membership card, doesn't it? And us, and we're blessed and right and accepted and you're not. Next week, we're going to pick up right here as we look closely at all that judgment imagery that Paul uses, that real tough judgment imagery, and discover in the judgment imagery, believe it or not, why here at Canaan we believe in an open table? Because I think it's all right there in the judgment imagery. But in the meantime, let's remember the point of this study on communion.
and in fact all of biblical study, it's the hope that we will be drawn deeper into the mystery of God and his love for us. That's why we do this. The hope that that love, God's love for us, we will become better lovers of God and each other. And as we become better lovers of God, we desire an ever deeper, we develop an ever deeper desire to be at this table, come around this table, become one with God, one with each other, as we celebrate his love. And then as some Eucharistic language we use here at Cana from time to time in our prayers, that we truly become his body, living and loving in the world until he comes. Might God help us all with that. Amen. The band's going to play a beautiful, beautiful communion song that I think speaks deeply, deeply to this whole thing. Say 